Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that helps you decipher the messy IKEA instructions that is Swedish history. My name is Chris. And my name is Elsa and this is episode 74 where we will, and perhaps unusual for a Swedish history podcast, be spending most of our time talking about English history. Or at least an English person. Indeed. Well, since you're the Brit in our duo, you might be familiar with some of the names of the people that will come up in this episode. But before we head over to the land of tea and marmalade-obsessed teddy bears, let's talk about our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, because this week's phrase was once again suggested to us by listener and long-time Swedish phrase suggester Magnus, who uh, once again got in touch on Facebook and told us we should cover the phrase Legorabab poor. Yes, and as with all of Magnus's suggestions, this is a great phrase. It literally translates to to put the rhubarbs on. And that means rhubarbs as in the vegetable that you can make jams and cakes and all that kind of stuff from. Correct. And so what does it mean in this sense? Because it doesn't really make any sense to me. Is it anything like putting onion on the salmon like we had as a phrase before? Lega lurk polaxen? No, not this time. It means to take something, to claim something as your own, uh, even sometimes to steal something. So you could say, for example, my favorite mug has gone missing from the cupboard at work. I wonder if someone has lacked rabarber powder, if someone has put rhubarbs on it. That just feels almost too weird a phrase to have a reasonable explanation behind why you would say it. But um, is there an explanation? Because that just, yeah, why would you put rhubarbs <laughs> on something to make it your own? Well, there's not really an explanation. I wasn't familiar with one, and then when I looked it up, I didn't really find any conclusive sources that traced the kind of background of this phrase. One possible explanation I found came from Swedish language expert Lotten Bergman, who was interviewed on Swedish radio P4 a few years ago, and when asked about this phrase, said that it was a reworking of the Spanish word embargo, which is the same thing in English, embargo, i.e. to officially ban something. And then her explanation was that when the Swedes heard the word embargo, they misheard it or mispronounced it when saying it themselves. So it became rabarbor, rhubarb. Okay, that's a bit far-fetched because it doesn't mean the same thing as embargo. So why were these weird Swedes using embargo in the same sense as the, the rhubarb? I mean, yeah, um, I'm just confused. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm not sure I buy this as an explanation either. But either way, it's a fun phrase that's used quite often in Swedish. So thank you again, Magnus, for suggesting it. Now, let's move on and see what happens when our King Erik, Queen Margareta and their Kalmar Union councils decide to put rhubarbs on a nice young princess. This sounds odd, but a uh, <laughs> nice segue at least. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. 
We've alluded in previous episodes that whilst all the conflict with the German order and Mecklenburg over Gotland was going on, Eric did have some big life events occurring on a more personal level, mainly that he found and married the woman who thus also became Queen of Sweden, Norway and Denmark. And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, this woman is the English princess Philippa. Although she had the challenge of coming into a world dominated by such a formidable figure such as Margareta, and to a certain extent also being in her shadow during their lifetime, Philippa was a very influential person in Scandinavian history, and it's worth taking an entire episode to look at who she was and how she came to be Queen of Sweden, both figuratively and literally how she came to be in Sweden. Definitely. And the story of how the marriage between Philippa and Eric came about is an interesting example of just what kind of high stakes political and financial transaction a medieval royal wedding was. In fact, when I was researching this episode, I thought a lot about how we view marriage and how we view the institution of marriage and how that has changed over time. In our lifetime today, we tend to see marriage and weddings as essentially a nice party and a beautiful declaration of love between two consenting adults who have often been in a relationship for a long time before the wedding itself. At least that's the case in our part of the world. For Philippa and Eric, marriage was more of a political alliance between their respective countries and a way to make money for their family. It was a symbolic act to undersign a transaction and it involved two people who had never met before, with one of them being a child. In fact, they had actually already been married before they met for the first time, but more on that later. As in already been married to each other, not been married previously. Correct. Uh, we're not here to necessarily judge, although I think we can all agree that child marriage is uh, is it pretty much a bad idea, especially when we get to know how young Philippa is when this all happens. Yeah, and this is just an example of how the meaning of a word, a thing, a ceremony, an institution like marriage can be so different over time. To look into this, we should probably start at the beginning, or at least at the beginning of Philippa's life. The protagonist of today's episode was born in 1394, so uh, she was only three years old when Eric was crowned king of the Kalmar Union, so she's quite a bit younger. She was most likely born on the 4th of July, but like with a lot of births in this period, they weren't actually that careful with noting down the date and the time of the birth. In fact, the only reason why historians think they know Philippa's date of birth and suggest that it's the 4th of July is because whilst the date of her birth wasn't recorded, the date of her mother's death was, and uh, that was likely the same day. Oh no, that, that's very sad. Yes, that's because Philippa's mother, the English princess Mary, succumbed to the fate that has plagued women throughout history, that of dying in childbirth. So Philippa starts off life straight away without a mother. But she does have a father, and that is none other than future King of England, but currently Earl Henry Bolingbroke of the Plantagenet dynasty. To understand the events that take place later in the story, and to get a picture of who Philippa was, it's worth having a closer look at her family and their place in English history, even though English medieval history is 
oh, so complicated sometimes. Yeah, if we think that medieval history in Scandinavia can be complicated with lots of dynasties and infighting and wars with their neighbours, English history is essentially that times ten. Uh, so we'll try and keep this relatively brief and keep it simple. So for most of the 1300s and the early 1400s, England is busy with the Hundred Years' War against France, which was actually longer than 100 years, uh, whilst at the same time also conquering Wales and having on-again, off-again border conflicts with Scotland. King Edward III ruled England for a big chunk of the 1300s, from 1327 to 1377 to be precise, and he is Philippa's great-grandfather. Philippa's grandfather is King Edward's third surviving son called John of Gaunt, who's uh, relatively famous in English history, and he will in turn grow up to Father Henry Bolingbroke, Philippa's father, and future King Henry IV. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of Henrys and Edwards and stuff in there, but uh, yes. So, Philippa's great-grandfather is the king, uh, who in turn's grandson will also become the king. Now, for reasons that would take about 15 episodes to explain, the crown passes from Edward III to his grandson Richard when he dies. And Richard is only 10 years old at the time, so the country is first ruled by a Regency Council. For any theatre fans out there, let me just say that this is the Richard that will be Richard II of future Shakespearean fame. Not a great play, in my opinion, but does have the great line... Go thou and fill another room in hell, which uh, I think is quite good. <laughs> yes, and the opposite of being quite good, uh, Richard II's reign will go down in British history as, well, not great. Uh, more on that if you listen to his Rex Factor episode, for example. Uh, basically, after much internal turmoil, lack of progress in the war with France, and personal issues on his part, Henry Bolingbroke, Philippa's dad, who's actually been in exile in France, gathers enough support to rebel against him. And this leads to King Richard's ousting from the throne, and Henry becoming King Henry IV, and Philippa thus becoming a princess whose dad is the King of England. Uh, but this doesn't all happen until 1399, so uh, Philippa is five years old, and uh, yeah, just two years after the Calmar Union is founded. Yes, because before Henry is exiled and then rebels against the king and takes over the throne, he has had time to meet and marry Mary. <laughs> That was hard to say. Uh, he wedded Mary, daughter of the Earl of Hereford. The two were married on my birthday, actually, the 27th of July, 1380. So that's nice. What's even nicer is that they got married at Arundel Castle, which is a lovely castle that still stands today in South England, not too far from where Chris is from. And we've been there, actually, with your parents. We have indeed, and back at the time of this wedding, Mary is 12 at the time and Henry is 19. Sadly, as we've already seen, Mary will die 14 years later, having Philippa at the age of only 26. In those 14 years in between those two events, she actually gives birth to six children, uh, the first a son who dies at birth, and then four surviving sons and a daughter before then having Philippa. It's like her life is some sort of weird medieval royal version of the rock star cliche of becoming famous young, doing lots of drugs and then dying at 27. This is more like, welcome to life as a medieval royal or noblewoman, marry as a child, have lots of kids, die in your early 20s. 
Pretty much. And uh, we'll come back to the whole marrying as a child business later on in that episode. But yes, it's safe to say that this Mary packed a lot into her short life. With her mother dead and her father off fighting his relatives for the throne and being exiled and all that kind of stuff, Philippa spends her first years in the care of her maternal grandmother. Like a lot of noble families at the time, they moved around from castle to castle. And this would continue once her father Henry became the king, because even though the royal family spent the majority of their time either at Windsor or in London, much like their Scandinavian equivalents, the English royal family had to move around the country with the court to have any chance of governing effectively. Philippa is raced alongside her sister Blanche and cared for by various nannies and later by ladies-in-waiting. She was educated according to the ideals of the time, which mainly focused on training young noble women and princesses to be good at managing large estates, which was seen as a woman's job since the men were often off fighting or in other ways running the country. Philippa learned to read, write, and speak Latin. In fact, Latin was the language that she and her future husband, Eric, would speak to each other. It's interesting to see how back then Latin was the lingua franca for people from different places to understand each other, at least if they were rich and noble enough to learn Latin, in much the same way that we use English or Spanish in parts of the world today. What's interesting, though, is that her father was the first English king since the Norman invasion to speak English as his first language. So presumably Philippa could speak English too, but she's presumably also decent enough in French as well. So she's speaking lots of languages growing up. Most of what we know about Philippa's early life we know thanks to the fact that the accountancy books from her father's estate and then the court have been preserved, and through them we know what they spent their money on, and thus deduce what they thought was important, or at least what they liked or got up to. It's thanks to these records that we know they must have valued an education, uh, even for the girls in the family to a certain extent, since tutors were hired to teach both Philippa and her sister, and the textbooks were bought for her. It's also through these accountancy books that historians have deduced that Philippa was fond of horses. And this is based on how much money was spent on horses and on buying equipment for horses that were especially named as Philippa's. Through these books, we even know what the names of the horses Philippa had as a child were, uh, which I find quite fascinating. Uh, do you want to guess what the horses were called? Either Red Rum or Incitatus. <laughs> no, but those were two famous horses. Philippa's horses were called Sorrel Warwick, Grissel Clifford, and Liard Bewley. These are absolutely terrible horse names, in my <laughs> not-so-expert opinion. Um, I mean, what? Grissel Clifford? What kind of name is that for either a human or a horse? I like that they named the horse. It sounds like the horse has a first name and a surname. Yeah, I think that's the point. Yeah. But they might, why don't they just call them Rudolf Anderson? Well, there we go. They're all terrible. But whilst Philippa was busy with her Latin vocabulary and horse riding and coming up with these terrible names for her horses, her dad had had time to become the king and was now busy making sure that this position was secured for him and his family. As we said, this was a tumultuous time in English history and King Henry couldn't sit too comfortably on the throne. 
one way to try and secure your position as king was to create alliances and gain support from abroad. And an excellent way to do that was to marry your kids off to various other royals around the world. Yes, we've seen that time and time again back in Sweden and in Scandinavia. Yeah, it started all the way back with uh, Olaf Wörkman marrying off his uh, children to various people, even to people down in Kiev. So yeah, it's, it's been going on for a while. And Henry also thinks that he has a kid who is perfect marriage material, and that's his eldest daughter, Blanche. First, he looks to France, uh, thinking that marrying his daughter to a French prince would be a great way to begin smoothing things over with the French. Uh, But Anglo-French relations are too broken after decades of war, and the French king says no. King Henry instead began looking at the many kingdoms, principalities, and dukedoms that made up Germany at the time, thinking it would be great to have an alliance with one of those, especially if it could be used against those pesky French now they've turned him down. His choice fell on the Kingdom of Bavaria in southern Germany, where the Wittelbach family had a suitable son, prince, and heir to the throne called Ludwig, and he was ready to be married off too. They no doubt saw similar advantages to the alliance as Henry did, and they were quite keen on receiving the 40,000 nobles in a dowry that Blanche would be bringing with her. Yes, that is quite a substantial amount of money. We will see how dowry plays a big part in Philippa's marriage as well, and King Henry actually lands himself in quite a lot of financial trouble because of these large dowries for his daughter. A medieval princess dowry went straight to the coffers of the state and the court that she married into and was often no small contribution to that state's finances. No, definitely not, and that's because these marriage arrangements were big business. And as we'll see with Philippa, it's not just cash that gets changing hands, it's goods, lands, and estates as well. And so in 1402, Blanche leaves England and goes to Cologne, where she weds Ludwig, and then they continue on to Heidelberg, and then later Neustadt, where Prince Ludwig has his court. In preserved letters to and from Blanche's father-in-law, Prince Rupert, and her own dad, King Henry, Blanche is praised for her loveliness, and her father-in-law writes that she lives up to all our expectations, which in a way underlines the business-like nature of these things, and kind of what we said when we bought our new TV. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like you receive one of those emails, like, rate your latest purchase. Rate your latest purchase of English princess for your son. Five stars! Delivery speed, 8 out of 10. Appearance, 9 out of 10. I mean, it's it's awful. It's human trafficking. Do you think they had uh, sort of, what's it called, those those websites that you can rank? So they go log in online and say, oh, which, which monarch around Europe has the best uh, delivery and uh, delivery speed and appearance of their, their children that need to be married off? King Henry wrote to this uh, Rupert guy, he was like, please consider leaving a review of... <laughs> Yeah, well, we laugh, but yeah, it's pretty serious business. And in a tragic repetition of the events in their parents' lives, Blanche, who is 10 years old when she marries, dies in 1409, aged only 17, when she's six months pregnant with her second child. So this is a terrible uh, reoccurrence of events that keeps happening in this family. Yeah, that is so sad. But Henry isn't just busy marrying off his kids for political gains. In between fighting a war with Wales, 
he has time to marry himself off, so to say. On the 7th of February, 1403, he remarries and his new wife is Joan of Navarre, daughter of King Charles II of Navarre and herself the widow of the Duke of Brittany. So she comes over from modern-day France. Since Henry is already on the throne when he marries Joan, she automatically becomes the Queen of England. In time, she'll be quite influential in that role, even stepping in as regent for her stepson, but that's after her husband has died in 1415, by which point Philippa will have lived in Scandinavia for a long time. Yes, because Philippa won't have too much time to spend with her new stepmother, even though the two do have time to go on a pilgrimage to Canterbury together in 1403. They, they pick the easy option there, going down to Canterbury rather than Jerusalem. <laughs> so, let's we stay in the same country. Yeah, I might as well. It probably only took them a day. <laughs> like, it's not very pious at all. It's not very pilgrimagey. But instead, it's time to start making wedding plans for Philippa herself. Indeed, and this time, King Henry once again looks at the map of Europe and contemplates who else it would be good to establish political and economic ties to. Now, Scandinavia, he thinks, that would be great for several reasons. Mainly for trade, the trade network between Scandinavia and especially Norway over to the British Isles, they are already deeply rooted and important financially for both regions. An alliance between the rulers would help smooth things like tax and customs. It's also a place in his nearby region that King Henry doesn't have a tie to already. Through his new wife, he's got connections with parts of France and Spain. And now, thanks to his eldest daughter, he's connected to Germany. But Scandinavia and the Kalmar Union, now that's a bit of a blind spot on King Henry's map. And it's a spot that he doesn't want to keep blind, considering how much he's seen it grow through Margareta's rule and, yeah, the establishment of the Union. Basically, King Henry thinks Scandinavia is now too important a player in the region to not somehow be connected to. You want them on your side, after all. Plus, now with it being the Kalmar Union instead of the three individual kingdoms, you kind of get three for the price of one. That's very true. And over in Scandinavia, Margareta is thinking of potential marriages for her adopted son. So it's exactly the same situation. This is getting particularly important and urgent, considering Eric is already on the throne, and to secure the position in their family for the future, little heirs to the throne really should start arriving soon. And for that to happen, you need a queen. Yeah. Again, just like Henry, Margareta and the Scandinavian councils first looked to France, and even sent a delegation to Paris in 1400 to investigate these options, but nothing really comes of it. Instead, Margareta and the councils are pleased when they hear of Henry's interest, because they see much the same benefits of establishing a closer connection to England as England saw in the other way around. So, mutually beneficial circumstances here, really. That's great. Yeah, and always conducive to an agreement. In March 1401, the first delegation of representatives from Margareta and Eric's court arrive in England. Their arrival has been preceded by lots of correspondence in writing between Henry and Margareta. 
a lot of this correspondence and later letters are preserved, and so we can follow how the negotiations went. Some 30 documents from the negotiations are preserved in English archives, and there are a number of documents preserved in Scandinavian archives as well. But the records are quite jumbled sometimes. First of all, many of them aren't dated, so it's hard to know what order they came in. Then we have to remember that these are tumultuous times in Europe and sending letters and indeed having people travel between Scandinavia and England was no easy feat. First, there's the natural elements, storms and so on, that can interrupt journeys on the North Sea. The sea was also plagued by pirates, which we've touched upon in our previous episodes on, yeah, Margareta and pirates at the time. It's also hard to establish how much each kingdom knew of each other. Some records indicate that they were relatively well-versed in each other's domestic situation. There are, for example, records that show that the English representatives are pleased that Scandinavia is now enjoying internal peace, indicating that they were aware of the development and legislation that had been brought in with the establishment of the Kalmar Union. And if you're going to know anything about Scandinavia, you know that they have all been fighting each other for <laughs> centuries, so it's probably big news that they're now at peace with each other. But then there are some records that indicate the opposite. For example, Margareta is sometimes called Isabella, perhaps being mixed up with the Queen of Portugal, uh, <laughs> bizarrely. And similarly, Scandinavian records in one instance call King Henry Philippus, perhaps getting his name confused with Philippus, which yeah. is just okay. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell, really. Could just be that they weren't very strict with their admin in general and didn't keep their records in order. Anyway, the delegation that came over to England in March 1401 was headed by a Danish nobleman called Pedro Lykke. Uh, he's an archdeacon, so a church leader from Skåne, and he is named the spokesperson of the Nordic royals, meaning he's allowed to speak on behalf of Margareta and Erik. Master Peter, as he's referred to in the English documents, seems to be very influential in bringing this marriage about. He remains the spokesperson throughout the proceedings and must have been trusted by the rulers of both sides, as it seems like Henry was trusting him quite a bit. Already during the first visit in 1401, he's given a letter of free passage in England from the king, which shows both this trust and that Henry must have seen him as an important part of the process. King Henry also gave him a silver-framed painting of himself, which is uh, amusing, which Peter later hung in Lund Cathedral when he became the bishop there. Yeah, that's nice. I assume they got to know each other quite well, though, considering that these marriage negotiations won't be concluded in an afternoon. No, it's going to take some time, and uh, you can just imagine it's like when celebrities go and visit a restaurant, they usually put up a picture of who visited, so it's sort of the same. It's like, yeah. hey, my buddy, the King of England, yeah. Put that up in my cathedral. <laughs> At first, the negotiations actually covered more than just Eric and Philippa. The initial idea was also to marry Eric's sister, Princess Katerina, who we've not really spoken much at all about during the podcast, but she's been kicking around the Scandinavian court. And the first idea was to marry Princess Katerina to Philippa's brother, an heir to the English throne, the Prince of Wales, Henry. Uh, another Henry, so we'll just call him the Prince of Wales, I think. At first, Margareta had intended for Katerina to become a nun at Vardstena Abbey, so it's a bit, yep, nun or Queen of England, you know. <laughs> uh, 
what's, what's the option here? But now it seems like she's going to jump at the opportunity of having her marry an English prince and, yeah, become the Queen of England at some point. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? So now the plan is for a brother and sister to marry another brother and sister. We don't know when this first delegation returned to Scandinavia, but we know that Master Peadal returns to England the next spring, and that on the 8th of May, 1402, there's an important meeting at the Tower of London, where, in the presence of King Henry and his eldest son, the Prince of Wales, the official decision to set up an engagement contract was made. Even the eight-year-old bride-to-be, Philippa herself, gets to be involved. It's not clear whether it's at this meeting or later on in the spring, but she signs a document stating that she accepts becoming King Eric's wife. The same document is also signed by her father, three of her brothers and a number of English noblemen. Philippa also names the people who will act on her behalf at the negotiation. She names the knight William Borchier, the king's chaplain Richard de Derham, and the king's sergeant-at-arms and knight John Parent as her representatives. So it's an interesting thing about Philippa signing this document is that likely because she's so young, she doesn't have her own seal yet. So she gets to borrow the Bishop of Lincoln's seal instead. I mean, you think that this may be indicated that the deal was sealed, albeit with the Bishop's seal. But no, there are plenty more negotiations to be done. Now it's time for an English delegation to head over to Scandinavia, which they do, and they arrive in Denmark on the 25th of July, 1402. This delegation consists of the three men that Philippa named as her representatives, plus another bishop. Unfortunately for these men, once they arrive, they're made to wait around for a bit, because this is where Margareta is very busy. As we covered in our previous episode, this is right when the whole affair with fake Olaf is reaching boiling point, and Margareta's also wrestling with the German order over Gotland. Yeah, things are a bit hectic for Margareta right now. Her calendar is pretty full, and her assistants and staff are probably constantly rearranging meetings and postponing things. Things are so hectic, in fact, that the English delegation has to wait around until October, and then finally, on the 10th of October, after two and a half months of hanging around in Scandinavia, maybe seeing the sights and uh, eating some herring, there's finally a meeting between them, Margareta, Eric, and the councils of all three kingdoms in the Kalmar Union in Helsingborg. Records indicate that the English delegation then stayed in Scandinavia for another five months, not returning until March 1403, because during the negotiations, trouble has arisen, which meant that they're nearly there for an entire year. Yeah, what's this trouble? Well, in a letter to King Henry's council dated the 2nd of November, the English delegation writes that two main problems have come up. Firstly, the Scandinavians want a number of conditions put into the previously agreed-upon defence alliance. The defence alliance was a major part of this whole marriage agreement and was basically saying that the two countries would help each other out against third-party enemies. Now, the Scandinavians wanted to be exempt from fighting against the King of France and didn't want him on that list of potential third-party enemies they have to help out against. And this is pretty much the number one thing that the English want on the list, so they couldn't accept this condition. 
this is why King Henry was looking for European allies in the first place after the French had rejected his marriage proposal. Now he needs allies against them. The Kalmar Union, however, doesn't want to get into this bloody mess of the centuries-old beef these two neighbours have. Secondly, the English are worried about the order of succession and how stable Eric's position on the throne actually was in his families. They're mainly concerned with the fact that Sweden and Denmark are technically still elected monarchies, meaning that Eric and Philippa's future children aren't actually guaranteed a seat on the throne, even though we know that they're pretty much always elected, the sons and daughters are kept in the loop. But they, they see this from a very legal and technical perspective, and they see there's a chance that their offspring and their their dynasty won't stay in charge of the Kalmar Union. Despite these issues, King Henry seems keen to still make this marriage happen because he instantly sends a letter to King Eric with suggestions on how to resolve this. Basically, he adds more people to the list of people exempted from the defense alliance in a sort of if you get to pick that guy I get to pick this guy sort of way and then he suggests that the Kalmar Union creates a new law that says that if Eric dies without children the crown passes automatically to any children of his sister Katharina which she is of course intended to have with the English prince who is himself due to be king of England and in return, the same would be the case if the English king died without children. It's not entirely clear how these issues were resolved. According to Marie-Louise Flemberg's book on Philippa, the Scandinavians seem to have accepted this, along with a provision that should this whole business with one of them dying without children ever happen, then provisions would be put in place so that English law couldn't be instigated in Scandinavia and vice versa. But another source we've read, uh, namely the chapter on Eric and Philippa's wedding in Vivian Etting's book on Queen Margareta, that says that this demand was ignored and that, quote, on November 3rd, King Eric announced that he had spoken to the councillors of all three kingdoms. He would not make any decision until July 2nd the following year, since he would like this matter to lay in the hands of the Holy Virgin and her son. And then we don't really know what happened once Eric had placed this matter in the Holy Virgin's hands, do we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although considering negotiations did proceed beyond this point eventually, we must assume they reached some sort of agreement or dropped the issue from the negotiations. And at the same time, this isn't the only issues they're having in the negotiations. There's also the not-so-small matter of the dowry. It's difficult to follow the negotiations around the dowry because different Latin terms are used interchangeably, but it is clear that it was an issue. More than anything, it was a financial issue for King Henry. To put plainly, he needed to hustle up enough money to marry off his daughter, especially considering he just had to pay out for his other daughter's marriage to the Prince of Bavaria not long ago. Whilst no exact sums are mentioned, both kings agree that the brides should be bringing dowries of both money and goods. 
There are also records that show that Eric promises that Philippa will receive a mourning gift. That's basically property and goods that she will be given as her own source of income. And she will receive this according to the laws of the Scandinavian kingdoms. So even though both parties are keen on the marriage, negotiations are really dragging on. In April 1404, Master Pedder returns to England to revitalise these negotiations. On the 28th of April, King Henry writes to his council and urges them once again to consider the marriage between Philippa and Eric. So it could be that it was the English council that were dragging their heels, fearing how expensive these marriages were becoming for the kingdom, what with the dowries for both Philippa and Blanche really adding up. Sometime between 1404 and 1406, it seems the plans for a double wedding was dropped. Princess Katharina's marriage to uh, the Prince of Wales is dropped from the negotiations, and we don't quite know why. No, but we do know that Katharina will go on to marry a younger son of King Rupert of Bavaria. So, i.e. Katharina marries a brother of Philippa's sister's Blanche's husband. (laughs) That's like something out of a soap opera. Yeah, it's a bit confusing and it's a bit of a triangle going on here that's bordering on incestuous. Historian Heinz Balruska suggests that this might even have been King Henry's idea. Uh, He might have realised that it would have been too expensive to marry off two of of his children at the same time so to get one of them out of the loop without breaking off negotiations for the other one he finds an alternative that allows him to write Katerina and Henry out of the picture. I mean if that is the case that's very clever negotiations on Henry's part. Yeah he probably just wants to get this done because it's been going on for over two years now and a letter from Margareta to Eric in the autumn of 1404 suggests that they're expecting Philippa to arrive the following spring because this letter is full of advice from Margareta to Eric on how he's supposed to behave when the English delegation arrives. But this arrival is once again delayed, again most likely because it took time for the English to get the money together, not just for the dowry, but for all the clothes and equipment and jewellery that Philippa promised to bring with her to Scandinavia. And on top of that, there were plenty of domestic problems that kept King Henry and his court occupied, mainly fighting with Welsh rebels. When Philippa doesn't arrive in the spring of 1405, Eric seems to have had enough. In records, he's often described as short-tempered, and maybe he was just fed up of waiting. He sends a new delegation, this time led by a Norwegian bishop, to England with the instruction of preparing Philippa for a departure to Scandinavia no later than the next spring. That, coupled with the fact that the Scandinavians agreed that the entire dowry didn't have to be paid by the time of the wedding, giving the English some more time to come up with the money, that seemed to have done the trick. So finally, after years of negotiation, a settlement, which is sadly not preserved, was reached. Yay, so that means it's time for a wedding. Uh, But this isn't going to be anything like what we might picture a wedding to be, uh, mainly because neither the bride nor the groom are present. No, King Eric and Princess Philippa are married par procuration, meaning by proxy or through representatives. Genom ombud, we'd say in Swedish. Well, that's one way to do it, I guess. 
It was likely this was actually decided from the start how it was going to be done, though, because remember, Philippa named those three representatives to act on her behalf, and during the wedding, these were the people that did it and took part in this manner. At the ceremony, which was in Westminster on the 26th of November 1405, they stood in the place of Philippa, and Tura Bengtsson Bielka, councillor and lawman of Upland, stood in the place of Eric. Tura seemed to have done a good job, because he received several gifts as a thank you, including some golden cloth from Cyprus from Philippa's stepmom Joan. I mean, that's nice for Tura, I suppose. The, what an odd job. Yeah, I'm going to pretend to be marrying as the king. Give me a golden cloak. I think it's even odder, though, that Philippa is represented by three grown men. Yeah, well, you know, they were very liberal those days. The wedding ceremony served as the formal conclusion of all negotiations around dowry, alliances, etc. between England and the Kalmar Union. At a ceremony on the 8th of December, King Henry publicly declares that Philippa is now the Queen of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, and thus due to be treated as a queen in royal court proceedings. But what has Philippa been doing during these years? Well, in a way, it was maybe good that the negotiations dragged out a bit because it's given her time to grow up and uh, hang around with her terribly named horses. Uh, she's now 11 years old, and we know from records that she spent a lot of time with her father and brothers, mainly in Winchester or Windsor, presumably continuing her education and, yeah, enjoying her horse riding. She spends Christmas of 1405 with her family at Elton Palace, and then it's time to start preparing for this long-awaited journey over to Scandinavia. Philippa is not going alone, thankfully. In fact, she's bringing quite a lot of people with her, 204 to be exact. 204 people, that's yeah. huge. The unofficial leader of this party was the Bishop of Bath and Wells, Henry Bowett. Master Pedro and a few other Scandinavian representatives had also come to escort Philippa to her new home. Most of the people, however, were wedding guests who went with her to attend the wedding she was due to have in person this time once she arrived, although none of these 204 people include any members of her immediate family. A few of her cousins went, but that's about it. Most likely, this was because of the volatile political situation in England that didn't allow for any close members of the royal family to be out of the country should someone then take the opportunity to rebel. A fleet consisting of ten large ships and four small ones, many of them commandeered from locals by King Henry, ferried the group over to Scandinavia. The main ship was called the Holy Ghost, and it was captained by a man called John Gold. A man by the name of John Mailhui was named as Philippa's master, and she also had her own treasurer for the trip. Yeah, I mean, perhaps it was a good idea to bring along someone who kept an eye on the expenses, considering the insane amount of stuff they brought along with them. I mean, we can spend the rest of this episode just listing the stuff, but we're going to just pick a few things. Philippa brought with her a large collection of silverware, including plates, cutlery, candelabras, jugs and bowls, and silverware for use in church services. She brought beds, a toilet seat lined with red cloth, 
which sounds comfortable but unhygienic, and wagons, at least one ordinary and one festive, all lined with gold cloth and wool stuffing in the benches. It's a festive wagon. (laughs) One wagon for everyday use and one that's more like bling, I suppose. Pimp my wagon. (laughs) Yeah. Knowing her love of horses, it's perhaps less surprising that she brought along eight ornate saddles with bridles and gear, She also brought her own chapel, including an altar, silverware for the communion, prayer stools, and clothes for the priest. And last but not least, she brought a small oven and, like, a coal basket. I mean, maybe she knew it would be cold in Scandinavia. Philippa brought so much stuff that her treasurer was assisted in his job by a man who had been appointed solely for the purpose of looking after all this stuff. He was named Richard Clifford, so namesake of one of her horses, I suppose. <laughs> Don't know why that's so funny. Richard and Gristle Clifford. He was called Richard Clifford, and he had done the same for Blanche when she travelled over to Germany. Well, it's a shame that Sorrel Warwick, Gristle Clifford and Leard Bluey like, had to stay behind and had their fancy uh, bridles and saddles taken away from them. So I wonder what happened to them in the end. Maybe they were turned into burgers. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely a good idea that she's got this bodyguard for her treasure. And as if this wasn't enough, the English also bring with them what can only be described as a colossal amount of food. And it's so much food that historians think that this can't have just been for consumption on the trip, even if they were over 200 passengers. But it's rather likely that the English were due to bring some food over for the upcoming wedding. Yeah, it's a potluck wedding. The list of food and livestock includes 48 pigs, 9,200 eggs, 23 geese, 2,000 clams, and what is only described as large quantities of beer. Yeah, that cracked me up so much. There's so much food and livestock, and then there just says a large quantity of beer. Yeah, it's amazing how much uh, stuff is written down what she kept. There's all these things about the clothing that she wore and all the different coloured dresses and what they were decorated with. And uh, yeah, we literally pretty much could have read out this whole chapter from the book about everything that she brought with her. Considering all the stuff they brought with them, it makes sense that this little armada was defended against pirates and other attackers. There was an English admiral in command of the defence. After having to spend some time waiting around for favourable weather, they finally departed Kings Lynn in Norfolk on the English East Coast on the 11th of August 1406. The journey seems to have gone smoothly, and they arrive in Helsingborg a few weeks later. We don't know exactly when, but taking into account that some of the ships in the group were relatively small and not knowing what the weather was like, it likely took them two to three weeks. Helsingborg lacked a deep water port, so the larger ships had to anchor out in the Urusen Strait, and the smaller boats had to ferry people and all of these goods over to the shore. Yes, so Philippa is finally here. As we mentioned, the English uh, had been granted a deferment on some of the dowry, and in fact, negotiations on that particular point weren't even finalised. So Philippa's wedding party also consisted of a few representatives that were due to continue these negotiations with the Scandinavians. Yeah, so the list of guests for the wedding is like, oh, and my lawyers, they'd like (laughs) to come too, please. (laughs) 
Historians have pointed out that this is unusual when it comes to royal weddings at the time. Considering the high financial stakes, you wanted to make sure that bit was done and dusted by the time the marriage proceedings were seen as finalised through a wedding, especially considering that a divorce would have been unthinkable at the time. At the same time, you can see why the English court was struggling. They have spent a grand total of £3,443 on Philippa's clothing and equipment alone. I mean, that large quantity of beer didn't pay for itself, I suppose. And bringing a bed. <laughs> yeah. And a pimped up wagon. <laughs> and that cushiony toilet seat. Yeah. Just a few years earlier, they'd forked out a whopping £11,607 for all the stuff that Blanche brought with her to Germany. Hopefully people were able to put the thoughts of money to one side, though, because it's finally time for the proper wedding, even though they're legally married, because uh, this is the time where the bride and groom are actually present. <laughs> I mean, it's astonishing to think that whilst all this has been going on, everything we've been talking about, the two people at the centre of it hadn't actually met. And they haven't even really featured that much in the negotiations or anything like that either. Now they're taking centre stage when the wedding is held in Lund on the 26th of October 1406, so four years after the negotiations first started. And interestingly, it's not held in the cathedral at Lund, but rather at the archbishop's estate. This could be because it's technically just the confirmation of a marriage and not the wedding itself, because they were married during this in absentia ceremony that they had in Westminster a year earlier. Both the Chronologica Anonymi and the Swedish Rimkrönigan, or Rhyming Chronicle, describe the wedding as a lavish affair. Philippa wore a wedding dress of white satin with long wide arms and a cape with a long velvet train. The dress was lined with the white belly fur of 423 squirrels. Wow. How many squirrels did it take to make this wedding? 423. Exactly. Jousting and other games were held and 133 new knights were knighted. One of them was a Swedish nobleman called Sten Sture the Older, who will return in our story in a few decades. So just stick a pin in him for now. Yeah, different. Sten Sture, not Sven Sture. So, Correct. Yeah, there's a lot of people with similar names here. Six days after the wedding, on the 1st of November, Philippa was crowned Queen of Norway, Denmark and Sweden in Lund Cathedral. As a thank you for hosting the coronation, Margaret had donated a gold cross ornate with sapphires, rubies, emeralds and amethysts to the cathedral, uh, so it could go up next to the picture of the English king when that arrives. Yeah, so after much toing and froing, negotiations back and forth, she is finally here. Queen Philippa, and she will play a significant role in ruling of all three Nordic kingdoms in the years to come. And what a story. It's so great to have all of this information and the records of like just how much stuff they brought with them, what was said in the negotiations, and how the English had to wait around for nine months in <laughs> Scandinavia waiting for Margareta to get round to talking to them and all this kind of stuff. And it really hopefully helped paint a picture of all this was like at the time. And what has been going on for centuries beforehand, uh, you know, at some level or another, because this is 
this kind of thing has happened during the previous marriages. We just don't have any information of how it really went. So this is why we spent so much time talking about it today, because it's been so much fun to look into this. And uh, even all the stuff like how many squirrels it took to make a wedding dress uh, and all that kind of thing. But one of the few things we don't know, actually, is about what Philippa herself thought or felt. Uh, there's no private correspondence from her, no diary or reference to what she said or how she behaved in any of the records. And the same is largely true for Eric. Yeah, and that means that, yeah, whilst we know how many squirrels it took to make her wedding dress, we don't know what these people actually thought and felt. And that makes it easy to sit here hundreds of years later and be appalled by how these kids were used as pawns in political and business transactions. But it was very much the done thing. We've previously seen how Margareta married King Haakon of Norway when she was a child and Saint Birgitta married her husband before she was a teenager. But whilst we see several examples of this when it comes to royals and nobility, it was likely less common among peasants and poorer people. For them, marriage was very much the need for a team to be created. Two people who could toil together on farms and in other labour. And as we all know, it's much easier to work together if you like each other. So likelihood is that more care was placed on mutual affection. And as also said, it's easy to sit here with our 21st century mindset and be appalled at how these young women were taken advantage of by their families and their, their new families that they came into. Now again, this isn't very much in the records and we don't really know what happened after the wedding ceremonies. And But we do know that they did usually take a few years before these uh, couples had their first children. Yeah, most of them had their first child around 16, which again, yes, is young, but it's sort of less outrageous, both emotionally and medically, I suppose, than being 10 or 12 like they were when they married. And again, we don't know what Eric and Philippa's personal feelings for each other were, but we do know that somehow they formed a formidable duo as rulers of the Scandinavian kingdoms, and that is what we will cover in future episodes. But for now, it's time to say thank you for listening, and see you again in two weeks' time. Not too many messages or reviews and things to read out this time, so we'll just say that if you do want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search a Flatpack History of Sweden or email us on flatpackhistoryofsweden at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we have a list of all the sources we use, family trees, the phrases we've covered, the episode pictures, a couple of maps that are now uh, well out of date in terms of uh, looking at a couple of centuries before that, but all that kind of stuff is there yes and so until next time take care bye bye hey doll